Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Facundo Rodriguez, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. We'll be talking about the relationship between literature, analytic philosophy, and continental philosophy, Facundo's doctoral research on Kant's moral philosophy and the interpersonal domain, as well as Facundo's thoughts on the value of the history of philosophy. If you'd like to get in touch with Facundo, you can send him an email on fr374 at cam.ac.uk, or you can find him on Twitter at at FRodriguezX2, and you can also read more about his research on his website, facundorodriguez.site. Facundo Rodriguez, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So, tell us how you got into philosophy. Yes, so I got into philosophy through literature, mostly. I started reading literature in secondary school, and I come from a country where the continental tradition is really strong, and that seems to be a natural way into philosophy, at least in the, in the continent. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it's really relatable for me that you got into philosophy through literature. I, I, you know, when I was in high school, I read like Dostoevsky when I was 17, and that kind of got me into philosophy as well. Was there a particular like, author that sort of got you thinking philosophically? Yes. Yeah, so I think for me, it was kind of a double movement. First, kind of a lot of the French writers that are very popular in in, in, in secondary schools in, in Argentina, but also Jorge Luis Borges, mm. which is an Argentinian writer. And the good thing about Borges, I think, is that he's very different in that he's taking a lot from the analytic tradition. So a lot of his, his short stories discuss or include or have kind of um, analytic ideas around different things. And so they, they read a little bit like thought experiments. So that was a, also a, a first approach to the analytic way of, of doing philosophy, even before I discovered that as a, as a philosophical tradition per se. Yeah, I can also relate. My dad got me reading Borges's short stories when I was a youngster, which uh, probably had something to do with, you know, where, where I've ended up now. The continental analytic distinction that you, that you gesture towards, and we've spoken about this a little bit on some episodes before. I think Dario Vicaro had some thoughts on that. Some philosophers, more than others, though, are not so receptive towards the idea that there is such a distinction to be had. So in as much as we can meaningfully talk about that distinction, what for you categorizes or makes distinct continental philosophy as opposed to analytic philosophy? And was there any reason why you've um, perhaps moved more towards the analytic side of things nowadays? Yes, so I think there are differences mostly in the methodological differences, at least. Maybe in the, in the continental universities or, or, or philosophical world, there is more emphasis on, on historical figure and, and, and relating to them in a historical way. And that is also kind of also connected to a way of doing philosophy in the, in the 20th century and focusing on some figures that it's true that the analytic philosophy kind of rejected. So you have a way of doing history of philosophy that is common to both traditions because you have figures that are read and, and, and studied by both traditions. So Kant being one of them, but the, the classics as well. Even medieval philosophy is, is part of both traditions, maybe a little bit more of the uh, continental tradition. 
and then there is a, a kind of a, a division in in the 19th century and then Yale becomes more maybe substantial and, and and less methodological in that there are some figures that are kind of or they were not properly engaged with uh, during the 20th century in the analytic uh, world but I think that is changing and and now it's it's easy to find people doing analytic philosophy with figures such as uh, Heidegger and phenomenology as well so yeah I think there were very interesting analytic philosophers that uh, wanted to bridge that that divide and, and succeed to some extent are you thinking of anyone in particular like I don't know I guess for me like I count Bernard Williams as an analytic philosopher but then sometimes some of the themes he picks up and the, and the way he does it like strikes me as like what a continental philosopher would do I don't know if that sounds right to you yeah probably uh, and usually these are philosophers that are quite knowledgeable about the history of philosophy as well so one is Bernard Williams I would also think of, well, Iris Murdoch as well, not only the, the literature, but also the philosophy. She obviously was reading the French existentialists, wrote about them. So that's that's another one. And more recent philosophers as well. So McIntyre, for example, political philosopher as well, mm. uh, coming from the kind of Marxist tradition and then changing to kind of analytic Thomism, but using, using still some kind of more continental historical approaches to, to ethics. Yeah, I think I think there are there are many and very interesting ones. Yes. So of those um, more historical authors that you said are studied by both um, the analytic and continental camp, Kant being one of those that you mentioned. So Kant is, of course, the philosopher who your doctoral research is is focusing on in a thesis nicely entitled uh, "Between Persons," uh, which I think is a great title for a thesis. It's one of the, one of those thesis titles that says a lot about the topic in just two words and makes you want to pick it up and read it. So I want, I want to ask you uh, what's going on in that thesis. I take it you've got a unique angle that you want to take on Kant's philosophy. Um, but for a bit of background, first of all, what's the kind of corner of Kant's moral philosophy that you're concerned with? And what's that looking like in Kant's words? I think I like to take all of his practical thought kind of Expanding a little bit what is usually read uh, of Kant, maybe not by Kantians, but at least what is taken as kind of the more canonical works by Kant on practical philosophy. So we all read the, the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals in undergrad, or most of us read it. And there is way more to, to his uh, moral philosophy than, than the, the groundwork. That is just the groundwork, right? So um, I like focusing on his uh, lectures on, on ethics. I think that gives us a little bit of insight into not only his philosophy, but also his way of teaching philosophy and the metaphysics of morals. I think that is a great text and it has great political philosophy as well as, as kind of moral philosophy. And then the whole doctrine of virtue in which he develops a theory of virtues. So that distinction that is usually done between kind of, uh, usually made between kind of, the virtue ethics tra tradition, then you have the, the deontology Kantian tradition, and then you have kind of the consequentialist. Once you kind of start to cover all of Kant's work, you see that this is very, very artificial. And there is a lot of resources there that you will lose if you just focus on the categorical imperative. Or So yes, I'm trying to to take everything into account and focusing maybe or emphasizing a little bit more what he has to say about love, about friendship. Many people take Kant to be this really dry and kind of rationalist 
thinker in morality. I don't think that's the case. I think he gives us a lot to have a very nice, rich picture of human interactions and intimate relations in particular. I think it's totally fair that, you know, once you take this broader view of his work that like the, I guess the, the stereotypical, or as you said, like the kind of like rationalist, uh, like, like uber rationalist way of looking at Kant doesn't make that much sense anymore. Or maybe just like viewing him as completely opposed to these other traditions, other traditional theories and normative ethics, that that sort of distinction kind of collapses maybe at some point. But what would you say are, you know, just to indulge the the stereotypes, what, what are the kinds of like interesting core ideas that at least stand out to a lot of philosophers when you're thinking about Kant? Yes, so I think for a long, long time before kind of virtue ethics was reintroduced in the discussion, at least in the analytic discussion, he was kind of the biggest opponent to kind of consequentialist and utilitarian ways of, mm. of doing ethics. So in that sense, what people really highlighted about Kant was this idea that there were some, some duties that were categorical in a sense that it didn't matter what situation you found yourself in, uh, what was going on, you would never be allowed to do this uh, particular type of action. Mm. One being lying, but not just lying, also killing or even committing suicide for, for Kant. That is another action that he thinks is kind of ruled out as against duty. Whereas the utilitarian obviously uh, has a more contextual way of, of saying, you will be able to lie, you will be allowed to lie, if the consequences of that lie are better than, than the alternative. Mm. That is not true for Kant, at least for the, the Kant of the groundwork. There is this case in which he was pressed on this by people at, at his own time, and he was able to respond, and he bites the bullet. He says, well, if there is someone knocking on your door and that wants to kill a friend and, and ask whether the friend is inside, uh, you shouldn't lie, because lie is against the categorical imperative. You should never lie, even if you are able to foresee that that will save the life of a friend. And why is that? Is it it's something to do about the way that we we treat the person who's inquiring at the door, right? Like Kant thinks there's something wrong with like the means that we take or like the way that we treat this person. What, what does he say about that specifically? He famously has different ways to formulate the underlying principle. And there is a huge discussion around how these different formulations relate. But one way, exactly as you point out, Kyle, is the formula of humanity. So we should treat uh, other human beings as ends in themselves, not as mere means. And one way in which we treat people as means is by lying to them. Because when we lie to someone, we make it impossible to them uh, for them to, to share the action with us, to act together. They are unable to, to choose what is happening to them. And this is the case with the the killer at the door, mm -hmm. he will, he, if, if we lie to them, he will be choosing an action uh, or he will be made part of an action that he didn't choose. Yeah, basically leaving the house in order to find the, the friend somewhere else. Mm. It's really interesting to me that like that qualifier you mentioned, I think it's so subtle, but it's so important in, the, in that formulation, the idea of like treating someone as a mere means and not as a means only, right? Because I go around in the world all the time treating people as means. Right. Like, you know, I, I treat the cashier as a means to my end of like, okay, I'm just going to buy this product. And like, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong though. Right. So there's something about this like mere qualifier, right. That's supposed to be doing the kind of moral work in our judgment of thinking that lying in, in general is wrong. Right. So could you just take a second to say like, what's the mere point that's so relevant for Kant? That is a really important distinction. So in a way, not only is permissible to treat people as means, sometimes it's desirable. I mean, we want to be useful and being useful is being means to something yeah. uh, else of value. So 
I, I want to be a useful philosopher, so I, I'm glad uh, if people treat me as means. But treating as mere means is treating someone so not as an agent who can author the actions, who is responsible for the action. So is in a way precluding the person from uh, participating as an agent in this. And this is something we do not or shouldn't do when we are using people in our everyday life. So the cashier or our friends, we want them to take part in these in this, uh, interactions in a way that are beneficial for us, but they are freely choosing or, or making their own. So one of the novel turns that you make then in, in your thesis where you're looking at Kant's moral philosophy is the emphasis that you place on the um, interpersonal domain and the phenomenological feel of the interpersonal domain, which you suggest has perhaps been lacking in contemporary ethics. I'm curious for you what this um, interpersonal domain that you look at through the lens of Kant's moral philosophy looks like? Because I'm wondering, you know, when we're talking about these kinds of cases, like um, the lying to the murderer, knocking at your door, and even when we think about, you know, the kinds of problems that define contemporary moral philosophy, like trolley cases, non-identity problem, perhaps um, duties to give to charity, these all sound interpersonal to me. What's the distinctive interpersonal domain that you're looking at that perhaps takes um, a step away from typical contemporary ethics? I think that these are interpersonal in an important sense. So they relate to human beings, the trolley problem and uh, kind of, uh, altruism and beneficence. But they relate in a way in which you put an kind of deciding agent as kind of a, an active agent making a choice. And then you have other human beings quite passively waiting for a benefit or, and that is, I think, many choices we face put us in this position. And it's really important to think about these cases. But they're interpersonal in a maybe derivative sense or in a less kind of uh, involved way. Then there are other cases. Most of our life is like this, I think, in which we are both agents kind of facing each other and, 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 and interacting in a way in which there is no, or hopefully there is no active part and passive part. So not just someone doing something to someone else. That could be something positive in their own interest or something negative as well. Uh, but there are cases in which we are interacting in a, in a different sense, in a sense in which uh, we are both doing something together. And I think that lies at the center of um, many of the things we find valuable in life and makes life worth uh, living. So friendship, for example, is like that. You don't treat your friends as you know, recipients of benefits. You treat them as kind of uh, partners in different projects or, and that is also true of, of, of other less kind of stable relationships as well, you know, relationships of, of intimacy or intimate interactions in general. So yes, I want to focus on this, on this way of interacting. My initial thought would be that this rationalist reading of Kant and this hard-lined categorical imperative would not lend itself to the interpersonal domains in ethics that you gesture towards there. So what is it that I'm missing from Kant's moral philosophy when it comes to the interpersonal domain? What does Kant have to say? Well, I, first, I think Kant has a lot to say about what it is to be a human being, a person. First, we have a very rich picture of, uh, one could say, you know, one's moral psychology or the, the way in which we are different from other creatures. 
that is a first step towards uh, kind of thinking or theorizing about what it is to treat each other as persons. So the way I read Kant is kind of as giving us an idea, kind of a map of, if you want, a recipe to be a person. And that is in part following the categorical imperative. That is kind of a rule that we must follow if we want to constitute ourselves as the persons we, we are. Something similar like the, the rules that a, um, a football player needs to follow to be a football player at all. So I, I'm thinking of Kant in that way. And what is really nice about Kant, and, and, and it's also a little bit puzzling, is that he thinks that the way in which we become a, a person is also the way in which we allow others to be persons with us. So, and this is where the different formulations kind of start to touch. It is by following the categorical imperative that we rationally, as the persons that we are, but it's also by acting in accordance with the categorical imperative that we allow other persons to exercise their agency. And this is kind of two sides of the same coin for, for Kant. And this leads the way to kind of the other formulations in which being a person is participating in a domain with other persons in which we can all simultaneously act as, as persons who can choose their, their own ends. Yeah. So can we see how your sort of Kantian inspired view works in a particular context? So like thinking about consent. So like, you know, when I think about consent, at least in like the sort of tradition of moral philosophy, I'm like, that I'm looking at today, we think about consent as this like normative power, this thing that, you know, through, you know, a certain act changes the moral landscape such that things that are morally impermissible become morally permissible, right? So it's morally impermissible for us to violate people's bodily integrity. And then what we're able to do with consent, with this power, is make this morally impermissible activity permissible through our say-so, through certain, you know, whatever are the conditions for valid consent. And Kant's theory is supposed to be an improvement on some of, uh, or at least like some of the passive elements that we encounter in moral philosophy nowadays. So like, what would Kant say about the picture I've just drawn? Yes. So I think that in discussions around sexual ethics, these active passive roles that sometimes people can you know, inhabit while engaging in kind of sexual interactions has been maybe it's one of the domains in which people have kind of recognized this and mostly thought that this was a problem and that this is not the best way of thinking about sexual interactions mm -hmm. and this has been kind of a feminist critique not only to different forms of sexual wronging, but also to a way of thinking about consent as a kind of proposal acceptance model that is really popular in kind of more pseudo-contractual ideas of consent or this idea of normative powers in which in the same way we can sign a contract to make your living in my house in a rental agreement we can sign a contract if you want to make uh, someone's access to my body consensual sex and not rape and Kant has a lot of a lot to to offer i think to this discussion and, and maybe it's a unexpected if you want ally to the feminist tradition i say unexpected because Kant is full of his writings are full of sexism and and, and it's probably not the best place to to construct one's views on on sex and gender mm -hmm. but still there are many elements in the you know some philosopher called the sane Kant uh, <laughs> to build a critique of of this dominant uh, view of se sexual consent and I think he's very skeptical about the possibility of sexual contracts to change the um, sort of morally 
problematic nature of, of sexual interactions. He thinks that it's a risky situation, sexual encounters, because you are acting in direct contact with the body of someone else. So Kant thinks we have an innate right to our own body. This right is the right we have to be masters of our own body, uh, which is an extension of our autonomy. So he thinks that in sexual contexts, we are so close that any exercise of my agency will happen within the boundaries of the body of the other person, of the, if you want, kind of the domain over which the other person is, is master. This is a kind of morally risky situation, at least. And he thinks that contracts will not solve it. They will not solve it because we cannot renounce to our innate right. We cannot just make someone else owners of our own body. So he thinks we need a, a different solution. Uh, to end, just by um, taking a, a step back, so th this topic that we're discussing right now, you know, the um, the ethics of, of consent is something that much ink has been spilt over in contemporary philosophy. And I suppose a blunt objection made by somebody who operates squarely in the realm of contemporary philosophy could be to ask, well, what's the purpose of going back to historical thinkers here? Have we not made advancements in philosophical thinking over the last few centuries? And if so, are the most important insights not made today? Particularly coupled with the thoughts that you gave earlier with regard to some of Kant's thoughts that can be sexist in nature. But I wonder if there are seeds of a response in something you said earlier, whereby um, you described the kind of proposal acceptance model um, that people talk about today as not the right way of thinking about consent. So I wonder perhaps, is, is some of the value to be found in thinking about these or in revisiting these historical thinkers in approaching different ways of conceptualizing the problem, not just different ways of tackling the, the problem, but conceptualizing the problem more generally? And is it maybe the case that, that doing this allows us to find new solutions that perhaps improve upon the framework that we've built for ourselves today in contemporary philosophy. I think that's absolutely right. I think contemporary philosophy works in a way, I think it's a very attractive way. It's very much a, collabora, a collaboratory uh, kind of enterprise. We all participate in a conversation. Analytic philosophy has this structure, which is mostly built upon small improvements on each other and kind of a an ongoing conversation. So there is a lot of common terminology that is used and we kind of are working within kind of one sort of research programs that we contribute to. And there is obviously hidden assumptions in the, the way we are thinking about topics, terminology that are theory laden as well. And that is constraining in some ways. So the case of, of consent is one, a lot is being written about the conditions in which you are able to to change the normative nature of a particular uh, action. So within the normative powers uh, discussion, what are the conditions for successful consent? Something similar happens also kind of in speech act theory. Some people use you know, philosophy of language and there is a lot of discussion within that, how we can make this framework work for this particular topic. And sometimes what the history of philosophy gives you are resources to kind of abandon a particular framework and I'll build a new one. Sometimes you have like kind of these regressive research programs and going back to philosophy is a way of, of kind of uh, moving away and kind of going to a more revolutionary process of, of rebuilding by denying some of the assumptions that are part of, of the contemporary way of thinking about topics. So I think that is a, a very 
at least one of the instrumental values that that doing history of philosophy has. It gives you new uh, terminological tools and methodological ways of of looking at topics. And I think Kant is one of the sources, but not the only one. Great. Fakunda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.